Welcome to the Design Speaks podcast. This is episode 127, and this week we have our very special friend and community leader, Hugh Weber. Welcome, Hugh. I'm back. You are so back, and back with big news, I hear. It has been uh, an absolutely eventful couple months. So I think instead of going into like any of my week, because let's be honest, the past few weeks, I've just been preparing to relaunch this podcast, which we can talk about later. I want to know about what you've been up to. I know that there's something with Design Observer and The Great Discontent, and I just want to hear all about it and let our audience hear all about it. Which one should we unpack first? Let's let's go with Design Observer. Let's go with Design Observer. Um, I don't know that a lot of people, you know, probably a good chunk of our audience know what it is. But for those who may not, it'd be awesome if you could kind of give us a, a tiny description of what Design Observer is and maybe what you're uh, what you're up to in that realm. Yes, absolutely. So this week, uh, very exciting personal announcement, but also I think organizationally for Design Observer, uh, I was officially uh, appointed a managing director of Design Observer, which means I join uh, the, the current two partners, Jessica Helfan and Michael Beirut, uh, noteworthy design leaders and, and design thinkers. But a little bit of background on, on Design Observer, it was founded in 2000. Uh, by Jessica, Michael, Rick Pointer, and uh, Jessica's late husband, Builder and Tell. And it was created as this collaborative platform for conversation about design and about the larger world. And it was a place where, for m- much of its early history, where you could go on and, and be part of a conversation between you know, Massimo Vignelli and Michael Beirut and Paula Scheer and, uh, and a you know, random uh, under graduate in a design program. It was this kind of democratized uh, space that brought conversation to an audience, including but not really limited to designers. with the advent of uh, social media, that shifted a little bit. Uh, so the conversation that had happened so freely and fluently in the in the comments and in the forum uh, kind of disappeared and dissipated. And in that uh, kind of evolution, Design Observer became a whole lot of other things. And it, it had been a place for experimentation and exploration. Uh, it, it found a, a space early in the curve of podcasts. And so currently there are two um, primary podcasts, the Design of Business, Business of Design, which initially was co-hosted by Jessica and Michael and now is co-hosted by Jessica and and a dear friend of mine, Ellen McGirt, uh, who's a senior editor at Fortune and and writes a column about uh, race in the workplace. uh, Really valuable, really valuable. Yeah, fascinating. And she is is an extraordinary human being that I love, like the older sister I never had. Uh, um, But she also is just extremely wise and has a a depth of expertise in, in corporate America. That, that is second to none. Um, the second podcast is called The Observatory, and The Observatory is kind of the inner circle of committed listeners uh, in the Design <laughs> Observer community, these folks that have been involved and engaged for 15 years, and, and it's a conversation and a back and forth between Jessica and Michael that is really rich. When you take someone that has such a long-term, uh, high-level vantage point on, on something like design, and you give them a space to just kind of comment and and and, and share and discuss and debate 
kind of the things that they're seeing in that given week, mm -hmm. it creates this space for seeing the world that I think is is fundamentally different. Yeah, and then the final piece is, is events. Um, they've hosted uh, a lot of events over the years, but more recently they, they've hosted the last two years, one at Yale and one at MIT, uh, the Design of Business uh, Conference. And it is this uh, event that draws and is capped at about 300 people, so it stays small. It is uh, not, uh, impressive both in the people on stage, the CEOs and executives of PepsiCo and the chief creative officer of Target and, you know, kind of this broad spectrum of, of leaders, uh, corporate leaders. Uh, I, I was able to speak this last year, which was exciting. And, uh, and, and yet the audience is just as impressive as the people on stage. And so it becomes this intimate gathering of people leveraging design or curious about how to engage design uh, principles and practices to see and observe and engage the world. Wow, that's incredible. When I when I found out that they were limiting um, those conferences to 300 people, I was like, oh my goodness. The the kind of, not inner circle in like a exclusive, you can't get in kind of way, but like how, how cool would it be to really kind of try and engage more with, with that small community as opposed to, you know, um, AIGA national conference is, you know, thousands of people and, you know, you hopefully can engage with with just a few but um i thought that was a really unique uh, take on on a conference yeah, and Design Observer lives at these interesting kind of juxtapositions and, and value intersections. It's, it is elite. It is unapologetically intelligent, but it is also accessible and is focused on inclusivity. It is um, intimate in that I think events will only get smaller, and that's with intentionality, mm -hmm. but it is also influential because the, that small group that is gathered are people that either through their practice or their perspective or, or their expertise or lived experiences have necessarily influence in a, in a, in a broader, um, broader context. And so it's, it's, you know, these things seem to seem a little contradictory on their, on their face, but they, I think it's the beauty of what Design Observer captures and contains and, and, and it's potential for extraordinary influence in the world. Absolutely. So what has it been like leading up to this point for you? How, how did this partnership sort of come to be with you and all of this <laughs> I think I think uh, there, there are two two answers to that question. One is personal. I, I, I as we've talked about in past conversations, uh, came out of a career uh, in in political consulting and community organizing that I intentionally left because I felt you know over a decade ago, fifteen years or so ago, that it was increasingly uh, divisive. That it was you know using the the talents and some of the skills that I had acquired in a way that was was creating more disconnection and more isolation mm -hmm. that I wanted to step into a space where um, those abilities could be used in a generative way to bring people together around things that mattered. And so for me, it feels like and has felt like, you know, something that happened both overnight and took 15 years uh, in, in looking for that and, and, and great exploration along the way, ODA and the, the, the service and the engagement um, in the 
the AIJA community, but it really was looking at something that was both, for me, that intersection of, of generative and connective community, fo focused genuinely on human connection and, and how we can come together to work and accomplish great things, but also the heft of you know uh, everything that I've missed since I, I left the hallowed grounds of Swarthmore College in 2000, <laughs> yes, almost 20 years, where, where, where it's okay to have conversations that are complex and hard and layered and that require sometimes pulling out a dictionary to share definitions mm -hmm. of terms. It's important it's okay to, to, do the, to do that, it, to have those conversations. <laughs> It, it is, and, and they're so rare that we can come into spaces where we're having these cross-disciplinary engagements and that we're arriving with a, a set of expectations that um, we might disagree, and we might disagree in, in some really foundational, important ways, but when we commit to that sustained inquiry and meaningful debate, it creates a platform for uh, bold action. It, it creates an opportunity for doing something about these things that are fundamental crises uh, across, you know, the lived experience of humans today. Mm -hmm. so, and, and, and to say on the other side of things, you know, this is this will be a story of and and is a is a testament to some of the ideas that I believe so deeply in uh, around relationships of influence and and not not influencers in the way that we think of them taking selfies on Instagram, but those relationships that are mutual and uh, have reciprocity at their core that have. Mm -hmm. A sense of shared values. I, I sat down uh, a year and a half ago with Jessica and Michael for the first time. Uh, it was really the first time I'd met them. Um, and we recognized over the course of a dinner and then a second dinner that there, were, there was exactly that shared foundation, that there was enough overlap in the way that we saw the world and yet that I brought something new and unique in, in kind of how I see design, but uh, more broadly how I see design's uh, ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And and, you know, so over the course of a year, we did uh, a, a longer term research project together. I spent a lot of time diving into who their audience was and who their broader community was. Um, we had an opportunity to, you know, kind of test out working styles in that window of time. Uh, I was able to attend the two events at Yale and MIT. And I think by the time this all became a conversation about uh, coming together and, and, and joining Design Observer, it, 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 just, it just made sense. And, and, it, and it just felt right. And so I was with Jessica, who has just um, located a Design Observer West office in, in Los Angeles uh, over the last couple of weeks. Oh, that's it exciting. Was, uh, very exciting. I was with her this last week, and it, it just felt seamless. We're stepping into meetings for the very first time where we're on the same side of the table, mm. talking about the same aspirations and, and values. And it was very fluid and very easy because it had started from this genuine place place of, of relationships of influence, of reciprocity, and, and, uh, and, and a shared commitment uh, to each other. That's incredible. So you mentioned, you know, wrapping, wrapping around the things that matter. So um, are you able to share, like, what are some of the things that matter at Design Observer that you are going to have a role in? I think, th I think that's a great question, and I think, I think that is going to take time to develop. It has been so many things, and I think <laughs> there is a... I think there is a stage of um, 
you know, at the same time that there's a, a divergent and expansive kind of sense of where we might go, there's also this convergent need to create systems and refine what it is that we know works well. Mm -hmm. But I, I know that events, both events uh, like our larger conference, but also smaller salons are, are a key part of what we'll be doing. I see us engaging in deep, meaningful ways with partners. I think that you know, so much of the, the world uh, of content and conferences, which is not what I, I, I think at the core Design Observer is, but it's easy to categorize that way. So much of that world is, is built on sponsorships, kind of, you know, how many logos can we wrap around mm, uh, mm -hmm. this one-time specific thing? And I think Design Observer has the opportunity to say that these conversations from, you know, climate change to social equity to inclusive business practices aren't going to be solved in a one-day conference. And so partnership is going to be absolutely essential over the next several years, that it's time for, you know, deeper commitment that is that is about um, the same kind of reciprocity and relationship of influence on the enterprise and company level as we're looking for and engaging on a personal level. Um, but I, I imagine that we'll see a whole lot of things develop. I think that we know that the individuals that listen to and have been deeply committed to Design Observer over the last 17 years want more opportunities to be part of that uh, intimate, influential conversation mm -hmm. and uh, exploration, not fewer. And so I think a lot of that will happen in person. Uh, much of that will happen, continue to happen through the podcast. And we'll, I think we'll see new voices uh, on the Design Observer platform in terms of podcasts. Uh, I think we'll see something that creates a space for that ongoing conversation that happens between uh, large in-person gatherings. And I, I don't know what that looks like today. I mean, I, I can use a word like community loosely um, but, but 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 you know not not membership not not something that looks like you know an organization like AIGA which you know we all have a, a deep affection mm -hmm. for um, but something that allows people to engage and and commit to to the foreseeable future and I think I think the design community is ready for that but I think the design observer despite its name is less about design looking in at itself and much more about using design as a lens to look out at the world uh, and to look that's at the society. lens I use every day yeah, and to <laughs> I look love at government that. and look at higher ed and, and look at you know massive kind of um, systems that need change I think it's coming at a perfect time because I think that we are finally at, at a stage in the world and as, as people, um, I think people are starting to really start to understand um, the big part that design, you know, however broad you want to use that word, plays in the world and are, I think, more ready to, to listen to, to this conversation of, you know, design observations on on everything and so I think that this could not come at, at a more a more appropriate time I think five years ago it would have it would have been sort of like what do you mean design in everything <laughs> well and and not not to change the subject but this is where the continuum and connection for me between design observer and the great discontent lies right design observer yeah, let's is go exploring, there. <laughs> design observer is exploring these kind of questions across a bigger landscape, trying to get people to wrestle with critical questions on a more ideological, philosophical, or systematic level. Mm -hmm. And TGD is attempting to ask those questions on a personal level. It's trying to bring people together, especially emerging
emerging creative talent and creative professionals around the concept of community and personal journeys. So in theory, you can't truly appreciate the implications of design without experiencing a personal sense of connection with community mm -hmm. that's impacted by your own design. And I think your work is enhanced by seeing yourself as part of that community of world changers. Absolutely. But conversely, your connections and your understanding of your personal journey isn't sufficient uh, in and of itself. Right. To <laughs> Too self-centered. <laughs> right. You need to grapple with a bigger landscape in order to grow and understand what it means to actually do that big, deep work. So right. uh, TGD, you know, is, yeah, is tell another story. Is, what is, what is story. TGD? Tell us all about it. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, the Great Discontent was founded I just got three by, in the mail. So oh, did you really? really excited about it. Uh, well, thank, thank you for being a customer and a member <laughs> of the community. Um, uh, TGD was founded by uh, Tina Esmacher and Ryan Esmacher. And these uh, were two ex extraordinary community builders and creative leaders. Um, they started it eight years ago as a passion project, and it grew to be a, a print and digital magazine. There have been film projects. There have been a series of live events. Um, and about a year ago, a little over a year ago, within a matter of days of meeting Jessica and Michael for the first time, <laughs> these things parallel each other so Those deeply. dominoes, though. <clears throat> they really do. Um, they announced that they were looking to sell uh, The Great Discontent. And uh, so I had been a fan uh, from very early on. Uh, I went back and, and, and I very distinctly remember the first interview I listened to was Lisa Congdon, oh, extraordinary illustrator. So she was interview number 20 and now they're, you know, over 300. Um, yes. But I had brought them to South Dakota as part of the ODA nonprofit that I had run. Uh, I had stayed involved. We had bought, uh, for ODA attendees, we had bought a couple hundred copies of one of their first magazines. Um, so we had been involved. So when they announced that they were they were looking to sell, um, I had reached out to Ryan and we had a series of conversations. And I really kind of intentionally thought that I was I was being an advocate and ally to help them find a larger organization or a larger brand that would, would purchase them. Okay. And so about six months into that process and a handful of introductions and a lot of phone calls, Ryan just said, are you sure that you're not the person that's supposed to be running this thing? And it started a conversation um, uh, starting in April that, that wrapped up last November uh, announcing that, you know, my, um, my organization, the Institute of Possibility, was going to acquire and has now acquired uh, the Great Discontent. So, you know, we we sit with this, and and, and I'll say, and this is maybe a, a, a little too kind of vulnerable in all of this, but when it came no time to actually <laughs> to actually sign the, sign the purchase agreement, um, I really had this crisis of confidence about whether I was the right person to guide the great discontent. Mm. It, it is such a beautiful community of artists and makers and, and creative professionals. And, you know, was I, was I the right person to do that? And a, a series of conversations, you know, uh, over a series of conversations with friends and, and with colleagues, you know, we really recognize that there's this, there's this opportunity, you know, the, the AIGA exploration took me to 40 cities last year. Mm -hmm. And and there hadn't really been anyone that had taken a step back from individual uh, designers or creatives doing these kind of individual things. Uh, they hadn't, no one had really stepped back to look at the broader 
design community or creative community as an ecosystem uh, as a uh, you know with it with a potential strength and so you know i step into the great discontent which will start publishing with um uh, an interview which if it's the only only interview we ever publish i'll feel good about it uh we'll we'll launch into that in february um but as a no fan, sneak peek as, on who that is owner, <laughs> uh, it is it is a young designer that is uh designing um events and experiences she is designing um broader attempts to uh, uh create systems change in in her neighborhood she is designing product uh she is doing it in um, a context of genuine great discontent. I mm -hmm. think often uh, all of us as human beings uh, can have some minor irritations and think it's the great discontent, um, but the context in which this designer designs and this creative uh, executes is, is a genuine context of great discontent and she is doing it um, in an absolutely extraordinary way. She is unexpected, but she is um, the first because I think she best represents what's possible when we look at the, at the depth of systems that have been designed to disconnect us across the spectrum of all mm. sorts and, and, and types and that we commit to acknowledging and addressing those great discontents that we create within. So I, I'm, I'm extremely excited about what that potentially uh, reflects and how that starts. And we've got the first six committed. Um, wow, so I'm that's gonna, incredible. I'm doing... So how often, just so the listeners who don't know, how often do these release? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll publish at least in, in at day one, we'll publish every two weeks. Okay. Uh, they're long, they're a longer form interview with, uh, a, with a full photo shoot and, uh, and which was it's which was a special part of the day. We shot all over um, and took photos all over Southeast DC with a incredible local uh, oh, street photographer like and photographer Dee Dwyer. She is from Southeast DC. She is lives in and teaches uh, in, in DC. And, uh, and so to have Dee be able to uh, join us for that first photo shoot and, and visit a number of locations that will both be, I think, iconic for a, um, a, a reader or a, a member of the community of the great discontent, but also will be extremely meaningful for uh, the creatives that work and operate in Ward 8 and, and in Southeast of, of Washington. So it is it is super exciting to be able, and something that I want, want to do more of is making sure that the person photographing the story, the person helping create the podcast, the person being featured are deeply connected to place because it's something that mm -hmm. has, you know, such a big part of my story is the 10 years with, with Oda being focused on, you know, the Dakotas as a place where creativity looks and feels and expresses itself differently. And so I want to be able to give that in a neighborhood level, in a community or city level uh, to the stories that we tell. That's amazing. So let me just say that I think those doubts that you had uh, were completely unfounded. I say that because if you think about what you're saying that the magazine, you know, is no longer, you know, it's not just a magazine, but this, this platform of the great discontent isn't just the one person. It's not the one platform. But when you think about you guiding community, I don't think I can think of a better person for guiding 
a creative community sort of platform than you. So I am glad that you kind of overcame that self-doubt. And even if it was just a small bit, because I think that you're going to you're going to really bring great things to this. Well, we, we reached this point. We reached this point of recognition that the pillars of what we want to do with the great discontent are, you know, honest conversations about community and creative discontent, but conversations that connect. We wanted to create shared experiences, which for me, the idea that TGD could show up live in Albuquerque or um, yes, you know, please. Los Angeles <laughs> or Austin or you know, Kansas City, that those shared experiences would be designed to connect and that we would create this content that was compelling in and of itself, but that it's kind of the call to action, whether that is implicit or explicit, was about connection. It, it, it grounded me in this place that it's okay to be a fan and to genuinely be in love with a platform like this and the people mm-hmm. that it features as long as the part that I bring to the table, that uniqueness of seeing creativity as an ecosystem, um, that I, I bring my skills fully, not as a fan, but as a strategist to make sure that it's connecting as well, that it's helping people better grapple with the nuances of their craft and, and you know, kind of their identity as creatives, that it's, you know, building this space for curiosity and creativity in a, in a sincere way, but in a connected way. What are like the commonalities that you see between um, Design Observer and the Great Discontent and kind of like your role between the two? What are, what are some things they have in common that you're really excited about? Yeah, it kind of, kind of goes back to um, what I was pointing to earlier, which is that it, they are um, different audiences. You know, the, these are, uh, you know, the Great Discontent audience is primarily culture creators and um, creative professionals and storytellers and designers that are primarily 35 and under 40 and under um, they and and design observer uh, conversely is uh, primarily uh, design leaders but also business leaders uh, societal uh, organizational leaders that are primarily 45 and older um, but that, that I'm like right of, in between <laughs> right. And there, and there is this cusp of overlap, which is 35 to 45, which is where I live, right? At, at 42, yeah. um, it is it is where I sit, which may in fact be why this is the moment that these things both emerged and they mm. both had crystal clear value and they both had this opportunity to be a shared entity. These will be separate brands. They, I don't... I imagine imagine the communities having spaces where they engage, and that's something yet to be determined. But it's more like, uh, it's a strange comparison that was made for me while we were working through it, but it's more like Old Navy and Banana Republic, right? They can be be managed with the same commitment to excellence. They can be managed with the same expectations and strategic um, uh, commitment to connection. Um, They can be be managed with a a standard of depth that scale doesn't have to come strictly through breadth in terms of numbers and impressions and and those metrics that can come through depth in terms of engagement and participation and, and presence. 
Um, but at the end of the day, you know, they're they're going to have different audiences and, and they look very differently and, and 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 feel very differently, despite both being monochromatic and and largely sans serif. Like they, <laughs> they they will have very different ways they express themselves. But I think the I think the overlap or the similarities is these are these are curious, creative people that are exploring both their personal and communal perspectives on the world, right? And and for me, the commonality is I was looking for this generative space where these things could be true. And I, I believe I've found them. I believe I've found the, the options where these conversations can happen in a, in a way that is generative, but is also intimate. That is also, you know, moonshot kind of size, like conversations, mm. you know, at Caltech about climate change, but is also uh, a conversation about, you know, uh, mental health or, or personal kind of challenges with mental health on it in individual designer basis through TGD. I mean, there, there, there is going to be, this whole process is going to require an extraordinary amount of trust between, you know, myself, the team that is being built around TGD, but more importantly, between myself and, and Jessica and, and Michael, because there is potential for um, the perception of overlap, but I think that we're all cognizant of that and fully aware of that, and it allows these things to be managed sincerely together, but independent. That's so exciting. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the great discontent, not necessarily just, you know, the platform, but what is the great discontent? Um, What does it mean to be discontent? I'd like to kind of delve into that a little bit more. Right. I, I will say that this is an area that I am spending a great deal of time working on ways to more fully share what that, you know, what that is in terms of how I see it, but also how it's best combated. So for, for me, the great discontent are these um, systematic forces these large-scale designed um, experiences that challenge us personally and collectively uh, as we we go through the world uh, what, what the great discontent is not and I, and I don't say this with any judgment of someone that might have experienced this but not getting into RISD and instead going to SCAD or going to, to another designer art program is not the great discontent mm. right Th- those are disappointments those are right. inconveniences those are, you know, they change life trajectories, but that to me isn't the great discontent. The Disappointment great discontent, is not discontent. <laughs> I, 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 and, and maybe I can contribute to, to it. I don't want to judge anyone's experience in that. I just, I differentiate between those that are struggling against, you know, extraordinary uh, forces like uh, systematic inequity or systematic discrimination that are uh, challenged by everything from, you know, the way we uh, design our communities in terms of how people are able to connect and, and, and engage versus how we design communities to be separate and, and, and isolated. Um, I think I think discontent can grow up out of, and, and I believe this to be an important, uh, really a truly critical aspect of how we talk about the great discontent on the great discontent, which is I think <laughs> mental I think mental health and, and isolation and and all of the things that contribute to this kind of um, uh, epidemic of, of of loneliness, especially amongst creatives. And I talked about this at length at times, but the number one uh, insight that came from visiting forty cities of of, of design was uh, you know pending. 
crisis in terms of isolation, and that is true in in general in the general population. I think it is even more so true when you have a, a class of people and a class of professionals whose output of their work is so deeply personal and and tied to their their emotional health. Yeah, uh, I'll say vulnerable. That my, my, <laughs> yeah, there's a vulnerability. But my, my father uh, was an incredibly gifted in his craft and was committed to excellence and was known for high, high standards, but he was an electrician and he never came home at night and said, I should have hung that little light switch a little bit different, or I should have, mm. you know, man, if I'd only drilled those <laughs> holes a little more closely together, it would have, you know, he did hard work um, at an extraordinary standard, mm -hmm. but when it was done, it was done. That isn't true for creatives. <laughs> or, no, or our, work, our work is <laughs> never done, and we exist I, inside our own heads all the right. time. <laughs> the number of people I've met that are still talking about a project they wish they had done differently 10 years ago is, is a lot, and that's because it is such a personal expression. So when I think of the great discontent, it is both those deeply personal challenges we face that only we know and only only we we think it, we're the only ones struggling with it, and I think we can show that there's a community of people that are also facing some of those challenges. But I, I do think it's also bigger things. I think it's designing in uh, a, a neighborhood where um, uh, where it's an un underinvested space, whether that is the school system or the, the community resources or the infrastructure, and to be doing great things in the context of a, of a great disconnect, which is often how I talk about it. I think, I think the great discontent is an expression of the great disconnect, which mm -hmm. is by design. Um, I think we can talk about, um, and, and, I, and I say this also without a, a huge voice of critique, but it's, it's, uh, it's a, a important thing to recognize the the great uh, discontent as a platform has been very white it has been very um, uh, uh, you know centered on the kind of mid-atlantic states and I and I just know from my own personal experience that TGD as an event in Cleveland or Albuquerque is going to have dramatic ripples. Uh, TGD focusing on designers in um, you know Minneapolis or Kansas City or heaven forbid Rapid City, South Dakota, which is <laughs> uh, you know rarely seen on the landscape, is going to have a notable um, uh, impact on the work and, and visibility of those creative. Uh, that uh, gave me the chills. Like that's. I just started thinking about the impact that it could have. Like, if you came to Albuquerque, the, the amount of talent that is in this area that remains undervalued slash completely unnoticed to the rest of just, you know, America is just yeah. unbelievable. That's right. So so that, that, that for me is what, what's important. But unless it, it, it is its own independent, thriving community, but it's when it sits in the same context and ecosystem as Design Observer, that it means that at one table, uh, people are, are, are solving global challenges that will, at the other table, and hopefully a shared table, will be impacting the individual journey of those, those um, creators. And and so, I mean, I, I think these things work extraordinarily well together, and it's it's uh, it's humbling to be able to sit at the intersection. So, how do you do? You have any like thoughts on how how people can find their great discontent 
and kind of use that to grow as a creative? I, I think a, a great way to, to find or recognize it is, is often to uh, see it through others. I really do think that where the great discontent, even in, even in its history of an extraordinary body of interviews and, and, uh, and beautiful design, let's not overlook the fact that great discontent is an extraordinarily beautiful it, every, um, every spread we- website. is like something that belongs yeah. on my wall. <laughs> That's exactly right, and the and the uh, the magazines, the print magazines, which are you know still for purchase, as you just found out, mm-hmm. um, are, are beautiful as well. Um, but I, I think there's a lot to be said about seeing yourself in community, about actually being able to look at yourself in the context of community and and a like-minded community. And so I think as we think about um, how people might find that and discover that, first of all, it's just it's becoming more and more aware of um, of the things around you. It, it's it's really easy to overlook systems that have been designed for disconnection um, and and overlook the the implications of those systems. But I think looking at it through the eyes of others is often uh, an extraordinary way to do that. So uh, reading those stories, listening to those stories, not only on The Great Discontent, but on other platforms that, that bring you in touch with humanity, particularly um, other individuals that have a, a very different lived experience than you. Um, these, these are not... Um, earth-shattering ideas but I you know I do I do a project and maybe I've talked about this previously I, I talk about a lot but I do this project and have for nearly 20 years called pick six have I ever talked about this you have not pick, how have I not yeah, heard pick, this pick pick six is when I'm feeling stuck when I when I feel like there's a bubble or I'm you know in quicksand and that's creatively professionally personally I'll go to a bookstore or magazine rack or you know this this past year when I was traveling so much I did it a lot at airports and find the, the stranger who looks most receptive to a conversation and ask them to pick six magazines that they think I should read. Oh, goodness. I think That's it's exciting. An ex- <laughs> it's an exercise that both allows me to see myself through the eyes of a stranger because the magazines they pick, one of two things happens. They either pick what they think I'm, I, I would want to read. So, you know, as a as a scrapping middle-aged man, you know, there's like woodworking digest. Are and we brewer, middle-aged? Brewers, <laughs> uh, I, think, I think for me, maybe. You might live a healthy amount longer, but I think... <laughs> I think I'm pushing up on it. Um, you know, they, they, they assume things about me, which I think is really interesting. Alternatively, they pick things that they that are clearly they believe to be the exact opposite of who I am. So it's, mm. it's extraordinary to see, um, you know, ma- magazines that are primarily for women, magazines that are primarily for, uh, you know, seniors or, or, or young people and, and to be able to explore. But it is to see even just how advertising talks to someone, to see how editorial kind of focus speaks to a specific audience to try to discern who that is speaking to and who that is for is an exercise that I go to a lot to to frankly break up my own challenges and complexities but I think it's about seeing the world with other eyes and seeing um, my work and you know my own present context uh, through the eyes of someone else. What an incredible exercise. I think I may have to try that, although it will require me to uh, talk to a stranger at the airport, but (laughs) I think I can do it. Um, So 
I'm glad that you talked a little bit about what the great discontent actually means. My sort of outlook on the great discontent the entire time I've known about it, I, I've kind of taken it on myself more personally as like the great discontent for me is more just not settling. Being discontent, but not in a I'm unhappy kind of way, just like, you know, I think this can be better. I think this system of how I do things can change. You know, besides the fact that I love having you on here and I wanted to hear about all your adventures, I also knew that I wanted to talk a little bit about the great discontent um, on this podcast because of all the changes that it's going through. Right. And what's, what's, <laughs> what's next for Design Speaks? Oh, goodness. So, um, currently trying to figure out how long I want my seasons to be, which seems like a really mundane task, but it's really intense. Um, so for me right now, I'm, I'm sort of struggling with the, this idea of, you know, how much better do I want this to be? How much different do I want it to be? How am I going to shake things up? What's the value that my audience needs from me compared to what I want to give? So I'm really kind of poking around on a lot of things. It's been a struggle, to say the least. I've been kind of hitting walls left and right, probably of my own making, because I think this idea of being discontent has kind of grown into something maybe that it's not supposed to be and feeling more like, I don't know, I think it's feeling more like, okay, can it still be better? But can it still be better? But can it still be better? And just being discontent <laughs> with everything instead of being like, you know, this is actually good. And let's move forward with that. I don't know if that makes think, any I th sense. I, th I, think, I think there is, you can, and, and uh, you know, the founding of the great discontent speaks to this, the getting comfortable with that. You can be discontent. Uh, you can be content even without being comfortable. And, and I think that that desire to be better can, can exist within a contentment of, of, of the system. And I, I mean, I, I would encourage you to explore kind of what it, what it is that's putting you in that space, you know, what it, what it is in your, you know, kind of origin story that, that creates that expectation. Cause you've built this uh, extraordinary kind of um, conversation that is no small thing to be at 127 episodes, <laughs> uh, to be at 127 of anything. That's you know, true. I, it's true. I, I appreciate that. If I were able to, look at you and say I've been to the gym 127 times over the last several years <laughs> we would both feel better about whether I'm middle-aged or not um, uh, but I mean I think I think to explore kind of what bigger things are in in play with this is an important process but also to recognize you have in this moment you have two things operating you have this history of 126 episodes before and you have this future of limitless episodes ahead mm. and and you though we we can grieve kind of uh, uh, change changes sometimes you also have the opportunity to s take a deep breath and say when when we come back in a couple months this is what we want it to be this is what you want it to be which mm -hmm. is which is an exciting and liberating possibility as well it is and I think I think that's probably part of it is you know I talk a lot I've talked a lot before about you know people are gonna put you in a box anyway so make the box you know right. like you design right. the box that 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 people see you in. And um, I think that for me right now, I have like, I feel like I have one side of this box. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I kind of sort of have, uh, the, the sides of the box are growing, but I'm not sure what those sides look like exactly. And I think what's, what's really the thing that I'm working through right now is this possibility of what I want it to be is so large right now. 
And I have so many goals and ideas on what I want this to be. And I don't want to have to relaunch this ever again. Like I want, you know, there will be, there will be growing pains and there will be changes possibly in format or, you know, you know, as, as the needs of the audience and as I grow and change, things will grow slightly and change slightly. But I also don't want it to be, you know, every season something's completely different so trying to think through this next year of seasons and how how that's going to look and feel to the audience um is kind of a it's kind of a big step but uh, i i'm definitely well on my way i i hired an illustrator to to illustrate a couple of uh sketched portraits of yours truly so that i can do some cool new uh designs for the Which cover I- art which I got a sneak peek of, and they're amazing. <laughs> so I, I think I'm, I'm getting there. Um, I, I definitely have had a couple conversations with you that have been super helpful. And my, my human Google husband has also been a great sounding board um, for that. But I think that feeling this great discontent is, is for me, um, on a larger scale of I just want to bring value to my listeners, whether that be five or 5,000 someday. I just, I want to make sure that everything I'm bringing is not fluff. (laughs) Right. Well, I can can only speak for myself in saying that that is, that you've already delivered value. That you've. So if I never deliver value again, we're okay. Because I've delivered 126. I feel like like you've, you've delivered abundant value. And there's, there's an important kind of element of all of this that I've discussed, which is there's, there's reciprocity in, in relationship. And so those individuals that have listened to you over the last couple of years, uh, will be there with grace as you take these next several steps. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, so speaking of when I'm coming back, this will be the last episode you hear from me until uh, March. So I haven't nailed down. It's either going to it's going to be one of the first Fridays in March. I, I also decided to change from Thursday to Friday uh, for a few reasons. We do get a lot of downloads on on Thursdays, but for me it was it was more pressure to to launch on a Thursday. Um, I have more time to work on Fridays, and as of right now, I'm kind of doing this thing on my own. So Fridays made more sense to me to be able to really dedicate focus time and make sure that it goes out on schedule every week starting on one of the first three Fridays in March. So check out our our Instagram for those updates on when that date will actually be. (laughs) So Hugh, any final thoughts you would like to share with our lovely audience on anything that you feel is something we might have missed today? It has just continued to be a joy to be able to be part of these ongoing conversations with you and and to get to watch you continue this process of personal exploration. And I think this next next stage of things is going to be thrilling um, for both of us. Uh, it, it's, it's going, the next year is going to <laughs> yes. answer a lot of questions across the spectrum. And uh, I just look forward to continuing the conversation with you as it all develops and evolves okay so plug where where can people find you and all of the cool things that you're working on great so you can find me on most social platforms at hugh weber 
at Hugh Weber. That's H-U-G-H-W-E-B-E-R. But I would encourage you to check out Design Observer uh, at designobserver.com. You can check out the the podcast there, uh, which include the Observatory, Design of Business, and Debbie Millman's Design Matters. Um, You can check out uh, The Great Discontent uh, at thegreatdiscontent.com. And you'll see very soon uh, in the next month uh, features there and and a podcast uh, yet to be named, but a podcast checking in on many of the 300 people that have been interviewed by the platform over the last eight years. So, Oh, that all, sounds really fun. All really exciting. That, the, the idea for, for the podcast came from uh, an extraordinary uh, 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 creative talent that I uh, will be joining the great discontent uh, beginning of February uh, who goes by spin uh, his name is Philippe Celestin and he uh, he made a note as he was reading the old interviews that each interview had a, a couple one or two questions that he'd really like to follow up on mm. and so the podcast's working title is the follow-up and uh, it'll be short form check-ins. Some of them will be extremely short. Some of them may extend a little longer, but it will be just checking in on our favorite uh, interviews uh, of the past you know, eight years and asking them those one or two questions that we wish had been asked the first time around. Oh my gosh, that sounds like, that sounds incredible. I love, I love uh, follow-up interviews to kind of see where people are, how they've grown, what's different. So that's great. Are you going to be available for, you know, if people want to come see you speak? Or is there a place where they can look at like a schedule of cities? Or is that not really in the cards at this point? Yes, uh, there will be a lot of speaking this spring. I, I head to Baltimore this week, tomorrow. Um, I will be in uh, Raleigh for their Thrive Conference uh, in the end of February. Um, I'll be heading to uh, Pittsburgh for the AIGA Conference in uh, late March, early April, um, and also attending PowerShift that same week, oddly enough, in San Francisco, and uh, the Y Conference the days after in um, uh, San Diego. Uh, and then in between, I'll, I'll be visiting some chapters, Detroit, uh, and hopefully a series of chapters in Florida. Anything that gets me south of Kansas in the middle of the winter is a, is a good thing. Um, so any invitation south of Kansas will be entertained. Um, You're like, that, I'm there. Yeah, <laughs> if there's that, snow, I'll be there. That's exactly right. If there's but no snow. I will, I will be in and out of Los Angeles uh, and New York frequently as well with the work in the, in, with Design Observer. Um, but in general, you can see the speaking engagement and workshop side of things at HughWeber.com. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll update that better in the coming months. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for being here for us, for spending time talking about all your adventures. And as always, having so many encouraging things to say about the creative and design communities, we are grateful that you are here to be one of our official representatives on a few levels so we can't wait to hear your updates sometime in the future well i'm i'm willing to come back whenever you'll have me thank you thank you so much of Randy. course thanks hugh so that was hugh weber thanks so much for spending some time with us today as far as design speaks is concerned this will be the last year hearing from me for about five weeks or so As you heard on this episode, I'm hoping to get the relaunch going in one of the first three weeks of March, so be on the lookout for that. It's going to be slightly new format and will launch on Fridays, 
Until then, shout out to Colin of Vespertine, as always, for letting us use his amazing song, Shatter in the Night. You can find me at Brandy C on all social media platforms, and you can follow this podcast at Design Speaks Podcast on Instagram. And I will be talking to you guys very soon. <laughs>